You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the storm. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the, the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Thanks, Anne. Uh, Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Malachi as we come to... Uh, its conclusion today would you speak to us would you encourage us would you challenge us would you help us consider these hard things uh, humbly uh, ready to hear from your word and and hear what you have to say to us we just pray that you would speak really clearly today Lord Amen what is the biggest decision you have ever made maybe you think back and you think well maybe that was my marriage or that was that time where I moved house and started a new job or the, the, the subjects I chose for my exams for, for university, those sort of decisions. These are big things, aren't they? Big decisions that can sometimes keep us awake at night, uh, wondering, have I made the right choice? Have I, have I done the right thing? Should I have done something else, something different? We finish the book of Malachi today, and this final section leaves us with a big decision to make. Uh, if you've been here as we've looked at the book, you know it. it's, it's filled with challenging words to God's people. It's a kind of wake-up call for them to, to change the way they live. And actually it's been challenging, I think, for us for that same reason. But these last verses, these last, uh, this last passage, 
it kind of leaves us with two options, two ways to live that we need to consider. Usually I kind of recap what's happened previously, but what we'll see is actually these first verses do that really well. So we're going to dive straight in uh, and, and start looking at the passage. And like I say, the title of the sermon, the real main heading today is Two Ways to Live. And the first way we see today, uh, we see here, uh, is this way. Rejecting God. Rejecting God. Look at verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. It's the same pattern as we've seen throughout the book. God makes a statement, uh, an accusation, and they question it. They doubt it. They go, What's, what are you talking about? And really, this final one, this, these short verses, it kind of reveals the heart of what's going on in all the others. Uh, they have spoken arrogantly against God. They are proud. They think they know best. And you see what they say? They say it's pointless. It's pointless to serve God. What is the point in obeying his commands? What's the point in doing what he wants? And they're looking around at people around them who have rejected God. And they're prospering. They're doing well. They're getting away with it. They're somehow testing God as if they're waiting for God to punish them and they seem like they're just getting away scot-free. So that's why they're coming to God arrogantly, not not humbly like they should. You see it all the way through the book in chapter one. God says, I've loved you. And they say, yeah, right. How have you loved us? A bit later in that chapter, God says, look, you haven't shown me the respect that you should give me as a father. And they say, well, what are you talking about? We're, we're bringing some sacrifices, aren't we? They're not great. They're not brilliant, but they're, they're okay. They're enough. You should be happy with that. In chapter two, he says, you should be faithful in your marriage relationships. And they sort of go, well, nah. Not, not sure it's worth doing that. Doesn't really matter how we live, does it, in our personal lives. He tells them to pursue justice. And they go, well, where are you, God? Where are you as the God of justice? There doesn't seem to be any difference between those who are trying to do what's right and those who are doing evil. And last week we saw God saying, bring the whole tithe, bring, bring everything you, you owe to me into the storehouse to provide for the priests, to provide for the poor. That's what God wants them to do, test, to, to, to test God and see his blessing. And they're just like, well, what's the point? Why should we bother with this? It doesn't seem to pay off. Why, why should we give generously to God when evildoers are better off than we are? When people are mocking God and getting away with it? Why should we give generously? It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? When you look at the book as a whole, you see again and again the attitude of God's people. And we see the heart of the issue here in this book is that they have turned away from God. That They don't have a desire to follow him or obey him or trust him. They're not honouring him with their lives, with their worship. They're rejecting him. I wonder if it feels familiar though. Have you ever been tempted to or maybe you have spoken similarly arrogant words to God? Maybe you've done it quietly. Maybe you've done it loudly to anyone who wanted to hear. Maybe you've just done it on the inside where only God can hear that. And you just thought, look, it just feels like serving God is useless. 
and I'm not sure he really cares. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Because life isn't working out. Others are just doing so much better than I am. I'm sure I've told you about my friend before who said, I've done what I'm supposed to do and God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. It's that kind of attitude. Fall into that way of thinking, think, if I obey God, if I behave myself, then I'm going to get what I want and my plans for my life will come true. And then when they don't, when we face hardship and pain and loss, when we question what God's up to in our lives, when we question why he's letting it happen, we start to speak arrogantly, say, God, what's going on? This wasn't part of the deal. We need to be careful, don't we? We need to watch out for arrogance in our attitude with God. We can sometimes forget our place, forget that we are created and he is the creator we end up feeling entitled when we actually should be humbled. Now, I'm not saying... Well, be clear that it's okay to be honest with God. You see that in the Psalms. You see people pouring out their hearts to him. But it's not okay to then kind of somehow let your life circumstances define your commitment to him. To basically say, look, I'm going to reject you, God, because you haven't pulled your weight. You haven't done what you're supposed to do. And actually, this passage makes it really clear why that's a really foolish attitude to have. Because we see at the start of chapter 4 that there's no escape from his judgments. There is no escape from God's judgment for those who reject him. Chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty stark language. A day is coming where this fire will be strong. It talks about this, this like a furnace, this extreme heat. Uh, furnaces, uh, even of this time, would have reached 900 to 1200 degrees Celsius. Really, really hot. Destroying everything that, that would be put in. And it says, all the arrogance, all the evildoers, everyone who rejects God will be stubble. Like the worthless remains on the field. Like ashes. If you ever cleaned up the ashes after a barbecue, it kind of looks like there's a substantial pile, but you poke it and there's, there's nothing left. It's just emptiness. They're so light, they sort of, you blow it and they, they, they disappear. Everything, that's been, everything that was good has been burnt away. That's the kind of picture we're left with here the Lord Almighty it says will do this he is the one with the power he's the one with the might there's no doubt that he has the ability to do this and there's no hope there's not do you see it not a root not a branch is left to them Uh, if you look through scripture you'll see every now and then it talks about a root or a branch as a sign of hope as a sign that there's new life there's, there's revival there's renewal coming and here it says no no root, no branch, no nothing. It's final. There's no changing, there's no going back, there's no returning to God, like we talked about last week. It's very serious, isn't it? It's, do you know what? It's hard, it is really hard to preach about God's judgments. It feels like in our world today, isn't it? We, maybe we have that too. Well, we've kind of moved on from that. We don't, we don't really talk about that, do we? That's, that's not the right thing to, to discuss. We, we, talk, we thought about it a little bit in one of our home groups, didn't we, towards the start of the year? And it felt uncomfortable to talk about it. it, it it's an awkward thing. 
but actually we shouldn't be ignoring it. We shouldn't be forgetting it because it's right here in God's words. And Jesus himself, who would know far better than anyone else how serious it was, talks about it again and again. A couple of examples for you. Matthew 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And I think sometimes we find the idea of God's judgment hard because we kind of don't think our sin is that bad. We kind of, if we're honest, we think deep down in our hearts, we think it's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it, from God? All this kind of fire and judgment. Is that really necessary? Jesus knows different, doesn't he? That sin is so serious that we need to fight it at all costs. We need to make great sacrifices to, to cut it out of our lives rather than face the horror of God's judgment. Sin is so deeply offensive to God. There is no excuses. There's no way to, to escape his purifying judgment. He is righteous. He is holy. And it, it is coming. In the book of Luke, Jesus says this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We do have a tendency, don't we, to fear other people? Uh, If someone is threatening you and your life or threatening you with violence, you're going to be afraid of that. It feels much more real than some sort of vague threat of judgment from God but Jesus says don't be fooled death is not the end and actually eternity is far more important than your life now you do not want to go to hell that's what Jesus says avoid that don't don't fear man fear God friends we, we cannot ignore the truth of God's judgment as hard as it is to consider and I know how hard it is. It is difficult, isn't it? It's, it's hard for us to accept that we might deserve that. It's hard to consider for friends and, and for family and for, for others we know who are not following the Lord. It's painful. It's hard. We don't want to think about it. But I think we must. We must consider it from time to time. We must feel it if we're going to grow in compassion for, for those who need Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how he does all he can to save some. He knows how, how he knows the urgency. Every fibre of his being, he's there sharing the gospel so that he can save people. Is that us? Do we care enough to, to share the gospel, even if it's tricky, even if it's hard? I think actually the good news of Jesus, it, it loses something of its power, of its strength, if we ignore this message of God's judgments because people will think well why bother why should I bother living differently why why should I bother trusting in Jesus if there's no consequences really to to how I choose to live that's not the message of the Bible and if you're not following Jesus today if you have chosen to ignore him so far please please listen again please hear this today that there is still time there is time to turn back to God There is time to find his love and his care. Do not make that decision lightly to to ignore that. His judgment is really serious. It's, it's it's, it's, It's a hard message, isn't it? 
But I said there were two ways to live. So what's the other one? What's the other way we see here? It's fearing God. Fearing God. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. At last, we're thinking, at last, we've read the whole book, and at last we get to a sort of glimpse of good news. God's people listened. God's people, uh, there there were some at least who were faithfully trusting him. Uh, Think about last week. God called them, return to me and I will return to you. Makes sense, doesn't it? This is th- that they would hear this message from God, hear all this, all these challenges, and be convicted, and come to re- and return, and, and and turn away from that, that that way of life, and turn back to God. Some, at least, were, were challenged and convicted to, to to commit their lives to Him, and that's what they do, isn't it? They talk, they talk about presumably about their commitment to Him, and they have this scroll written, script written down in in God's presence with all of their names written on it. A scroll of remembrance. I don't think we've got that record, but it's certainly not lost to God. God does not forget his people. And you see what they did? It says they feared the Lord and honoured his name. Now fear, when we talk about fearing the Lord, it does, it sounds like a strange concept, doesn't it? Because I think when we think of fear, it makes us think of being scared. Are we scared of God? Is that, is that why we obey God? Because we're kind of terrified of him? And he's really like a sort of cruel tyrant leader. You know, is it basically the same as, I don't know, some Russian soldier is terrified of Putin? Is that the same as our relationship with God? Well, no. That's clearly not what's meant here. Have a look at these verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 12. This gives us a glimpse of what this word maybe should mean to us. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That hasn't changed in the New Testament. God is still a consuming fire. He is still holy and pure and perfect. And yet it says here, worship God with reverence, with awe. And those perhaps a better way of understanding what it means to, to, to fear God. It means we're aware of his power. We're aware of his strength. We're aware of who he is. And we're amazed, we're staggered perhaps at his love and his grace that he has shown us, the compassion he's shown us. Basically, it's a way of us accepting that, that who he is uh, as Lord of all, what he has done for us, it should have a profound effect on how we live our lives. That's, that's kind of what it means to fear God. That's perhaps helpful, isn't it, to think about that. If we're trusting him, if we, if we are fearing God... We don't need to fear anything else. We definitely don't need to be scared of him. It's a deep respect. It's a deep awe. A deep trust. It's recognising actually without him, we would have nothing. We would be destined for, for awful, the awful eternity of hell. Except for him. So if those who reject God, they, they face judgments. What of those who fear God? What do they face? Well, we see, don't we, also in this chapter, that there's no escaping God's blessing for those who fear him. Chapter 3, verse 17. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. 
And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do you have any treasured possessions? What are the things that you keep safe at home? You look after them carefully? Uh, Here's a picture of, of Micah with one of his treasured possessions. This was taken at Christmas last year. Uh, got himself a Paw Patrol teddy and he just did not want to let go of it. It was this treasure possession. He was holding it really tightly. Imagine that being the case between God and us. His people are his treasured possession. They are spared from his judgments. We're part of the family. He, he is a father who spares his children. It's a sparing his son who serves him. And actually, that's a helpful way to think about how we serve God, isn't it? We serve him gladly. Not as kind of slaves as we feel like we've we've got to work hard to somehow earn his approval, achieve that blessing. Never really being sure that we've done enough. No, we serve God gladly as his sons and his daughters, as his children. There's a security there. All our needs are met already. We are deeply blessed. And so it's kind of like, well, why would I serve anywhere else? Why would, why would I look anywhere else? Why would I follow anyone else when I have all that I need in, in, in Jesus? There's a clear distinction, isn't there, in these two ways to live that are set out in this passage. And even verse 18 says it. You will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Those who serve God, those who do not. It's like it will be really obvious when God returns uh, which decision people have made. And there's more blessing for God's people coming. Look at chapter 4 as well. Chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its race. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 2 is a beautiful picture, isn't it? The sun comes up. It's warm, it's life-giving, it's perfect, it's righteous. A lot of translations talk about it coming with wings. That's just a kind of picture of the sun's rays coming up. And there's healing in those rays. It's like everything it shines on will be blessed. There's no more disease, no more disaster, no more brokenness, no more tiredness, no more jealousy, no more pride, no more hatred, no more theft, no more infidelity. No more murder, no more rape, no more abuse, no more war, no more cancer, no more death. That is what we're looking forward to. Surely we think that is a joyful moment, isn't it? Wonderful moments. And it's described as frolicking like calves. Not not the most obvious image. Here's a little video of some calves frolicking just so you can get get the feel for it. They're like happy dogs. Look at that. They're out in the field prancing around. They are incredibly happy to be out and about enjoying the grass. It's beautiful, isn't it? Frolicking, they are, they are happy, they are joyful. And that's why it says we should be like, if we, are, if, we, if we get God's blessing, we understand what it means to fear him. There's no escape from his blessing. We should be frolicking around the room, dancing, rejoicing in, in the difference he has made to our lives. And then we get verse 3, which is a bit jarring, isn't it? Because it says, and also you're going to trample on the wicked uh, and there'll be like ashes under your feet. It feels like, yeah, we'll focus on verse 2. Maybe we won't focus on verse 3. That's a bit awkward, isn't it? But actually it's a picture of, it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of victory. 
it's easier to understand perhaps if you've been deeply hurt or, or, or oppressed by wicked, wicked people. You can imagine, can't you? I don't know, if you, if you were a refugee, being, you've been forced out of your country because of the persecution faced you, this would be more of a comfort, wouldn't it? To think one day, um, that, that oppression, they're going to face God's judgments. They will not stand against me. So ultimately, it's a strange image for us, but it is good news for God's people who are suffering. You don't get much bigger difference, do you, in these two ways to live? There's this really clear contrast between these two decisions. An incredibly serious warning for those who reject him, and great reassurance, great blessing for those who, who choose to turn to him. So how do we do that? How do we, choose, how do we go about choosing well? How do we go about fearing God? How do we go about getting our names written on that, on that scroll? Revelation actually talks about the book of life, you know, our names written there. What does it take to kind of prove our worth and uh, prove our fear of the Lord and our commitment to him? Is there this kind of checklist we've got to tick off? We've got to make sure we get to church without fail. We've got to spend an hour a day praying. We've got to read five chapters of the Bible every morning. We've got to live differently. We've got to, you know, we, we need less lust in our lives, less anxiety, less greed, less anger, less selfishness. Now, those things I've described are good things, of course, to strive towards. But if it, if it was working that way, you know, you've got to earn, that, earn it with that sort of list. We'd never know for sure. We would never know if we'd done enough. If we're honest, I don't know, if, imagine photos of your sins just coming up on the screen right now. Even the sins you've done this week. It would be incredibly humbling, wouldn't it? Be shocking, be embarrassing because our attitude is often to reject God and turn away from him, thinking we know better, thinking we should live our own way. And actually left to our own devices, we all choose that first one, rejecting God. That's, where we, that's what we should face. We should face God's judgments. So what hope is there? Actually, Malachi is a really good end to the Old Testament. Uh, it shows us this pattern that happens again and again. I've talked about it before, you know, how God's people follow God and then get led astray, or they go, they, they turn away, they sin, they're convicted, they repent, they turn back. And it just, it's just this cycle that goes on and on. And it's always like you feel something different must come, something greater, something better must be the solution. And that's why we, we finish with these last verses in, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Look with me. Chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So verse 4 kind of points backwards to Moses and the law. It's a reminder to God's people to say, look, it's a good thing. God's law is, is good. It's good for you. It, 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 it's there to bless you. It's a good thing to obey it. And then verses 5 and 6 point forwards. It talks about Elijah coming again. God promises to send him back before the day of judgment. You see why? It talks about restoring families, parents and children, restoring these things. There's always a picture of blessing in the Old Testament was, was children obeying their parents, families caring for each other. But I think there's another picture here 
thinking about restoring the covenant relationship between God and his people. That's there, isn't it? God, God is talked about as a father in this book. Uh, and we are his wayward children. It's like something needs to happen for that reconciliation to take place. And it happens 400 years later. Actually, that prophecy is, is kind of fulfilled in several ways. John the Baptist comes before Jesus and invites people to repent, invites people to turn back to God. And at several points, I, I can show you where, Jesus says he is the Elijah, the Elijah that was going to come. He has come to, to, to point people in the right direction. And then even, perhaps even more clearly, look at the, the, the transfiguration where Jesus, up on a mountain with his disciples, is transformed and they get a glimpse of his true glory. And you, see, you can see it in Luke 9, for example. And he's there with Moses and Elijah. He's there with the two people mentioned here in Malachi. And they're talking about his departure. It says, talking about his departure. But really the word is, they're talking about his exodus. They're talking about his exodus. Now, we, we've been in exodus, haven't we, already in this year. We have seen what, it, what the cost was to rescue God's people from Egypt. The, the, the lambs that, that were sacrificed, the blood that was put on the doorpost so that God's judgment passed over. And here's Jesus talking about his exodus where not that he's going to escape, but completely the opposite. He was the lamb going to be sacrificed. His blood was shed. He was the one who faced God's judgment so that he could rescue his people, so he could restore that, that covenant relationship, so he could bring healing, and he could save people from that awful judgment that they would face otherwise. There's a big difference. You see, this is the, this is the thing that the Old Testament could never quite solve. It's that they, you needed something you needed something greater something better you needed the son of God so when we look at this when we look at think about what it means to fear God and, and serve him and receive that blessing we've got to understand that it, it begins and it carries on all of it happens in Christ all of it happens in Christ yes God's judgment is truly awful but it would be worse wouldn't it if there was no way of escape and what's awe inspiring what, what leads us to fear is his great love for us he offers a way for us to be free from sin, to be saved from hell. And it's through his son. He gave up his own son in our place to take that judgment, take that wrath away. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, does it? When you actually think the son of God given for people like us, it doesn't make sense. What have we done to earn such incredible, incredible love? And I guess that, that is what love is, isn't it? Sometimes it, doesn't, sometimes it doesn't make sense why we do the things we do for our children, for example. We make sacrifices for them because we love them. And God makes these sacrifices because he loves us. And that is just staggering, isn't it? We need to rejoice because he loves us. He is the one who gives us hope. His, he's the one who writes our names in, in the book of life. It's never gonna, they never get rubbed out. They're never erased. There's that security, that certain hope. So you've got these, these choices today. You see, you have these two ways to live work. Arrogantly rejecting the Lord, rejecting his love, or putting our trust in Jesus. And of course, that decision itself is even, all of faith is a gift from God in the first place, isn't it? What an what a incredible thing it, his love is. 
It is not about what we do. It is about his grace. It is about having our name written there. It's, notice it's our names written. It's not the things we've done. It's not saying, you know, please let Adrian in because he's done this and this and it kind of cancels out this and that. No. The name is written. The debt is paid. You are welcome. That's the context we need. That's, we fear God. We serve him remembering that. Responding to his love. Not earning it in the first place. Really, today, the message is very simple. Which way of life will you choose? Will you reject him or will you trust him? And it is such a severe warning, isn't it, for those who choose to reject him? I think as a reminder again, urgency for us. What are we doing to tell the good news to other people? Yes, it might feel uncomfortable, but it's urgent, it's desperate. We need to fear God more than man because of what he's done for us. We need to keep fearing him, keep trusting him. It's a good book, isn't it, Malachi? I hope you've found it helpful looking through it. It's a a book that warns us of that complacent worship and ultimately points us to the one person who can provide all that we need, who can save us, the Lord Jesus. So let me encourage you, you know, in the years ahead, keep coming back to this book, allowing it to convict you again, to remind you where you might be growing in complacency, to keep clinging to Jesus, to keep growing in your Christian life, to not be complacent. That needs to be our prayer, doesn't it? Shall we, shall we pray? Lord, I'm conscious that this passage is heavy and hard. It is hard to consider your judgments. I do pray for anyone here who maybe has not grasped it or understood the, the consequences of their actions. Lord, but they, would you call them to yourselves, to, to you, yourself? Would you bring them to yourself? And Lord, for those of us who have put our trust in you, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation, of rescue, of certain hope. Lord, we do not deserve it. Every day we we fail you, and yet you love us and pour your grace out. Thank you. And please, would you be at work in our hearts and helping us rely on you, helping us remember that it's always in your strength, always in your grace. It's never about what we do but that you'd help us to serve you with gladness in response to that. Father, please, just keep us close. Amen.